you so much. Please turn in your Bibles this morning to the little book of 2 Peter chapter 3. As I've been just praying about which direction to go in ministry, I'd like to give you a, an upward of the Lord's return. He is coming again. And in 2 Peter chapter 3, we have his coming brought before us in a wonderfully endearing way. Beloved, the Lord is coming. I'd like you to follow as I read this chapter, 2 Peter chapter 3. As you just get situated, I want to thank you for the privilege of being here to minister God's word. Nancy and I have thoroughly enjoyed our fellowship together, and uh, we look forward to getting back home. We've got a busy schedule for the rest of the month, but uh, we thank the Lord for the time that we've had here in sunny Florida. (laughs) You brought in the hot temps for us here, so when we left on... Uh, earlier uh, last week, it was 27 degrees that morning, and uh, but we knew we were headed for good temps and good fellowship. Second Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, I'll read through verse 18. I'm using the New King James translation. Please follow along with me. Beloved, I now write to you in this second epistle, and both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, All things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God, the heavens were of old, and the earth, standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Verse 8. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Verse 14. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless, and consider that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation, 
as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. Verse 17, you therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, Beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and forever. And will you conclude it with me? Amen. Amen. What a great chapter we have, written to the people of God and calling us his beloved. And giving us some beloved reminders. Primarily, beloved, the Lord is coming. And so as we take just a little bit of time today, I want to give you that reminder as from the word of God and speak as of the oracles of God, this important reminder that every believer needs, not only once a year, but every day we wake up to live our lives and light of his coming. Now, I remember speaking on the Lord's coming at a conference up in the Northeast somewhere. And once we started the theme for the conference of the Lord's coming, after the first message I gave, someone came up and they said, I don't know how long it's been since I've heard a message of the Lord's coming. I hope that's not true here. I know it isn't going to be true today. And I trust that Just as the believers of old, you know, they used to greet each other. How? Maranatha. It means the Lord is coming. And so we have this constant reminder among believers, no matter how bad things get, that is our great upward call to lift up our eyes, to lift up our heads. Our redemption draws near. And so we start in this this little chapter, the very last chapter of the Apostle Simon Peter, with those four times we read that endearing term, beloved. First, verses 1 through 8, or verses 1 through 7, really, we're going to see, beloved, be reminded. And then verses 8 and 9, beloved, be informed. Verses 10 through 16, beloved, be holy. And then lastly, verses 17 and 18, beloved, be warned. And so as we look at this very first section, beloved, be reminded. We were talking yesterday about never minding the reminders. We have the reminder from Simon Peter, the apostle of the Lord Jesus, as the aged apostle who lived to an old age, giving us this reminder Personally, if you'll just turn to chapter one of second Peter, you'll notice that Simon Peter had a ministry of reminding, and that's the kind of ministry I'd like to have, not telling you something new that you've never heard. Remember, if it's new, it's not true. And if it's true, it's not new, but telling you something we already know, and we just need to be reminded. Second Peter chapter one, you'll notice in verse 12. Peter gives a reminder from a past tense perspective, and he says, For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, 
though you know them and are established, past tense, in the present truth. So I'm not thinking you're going to come out thinking, oh, I've heard something new and wonderful. It is wonderful, but it's not new. It's ever fresh, I trust. I was at a meeting a number of years ago, and I heard someone speak up from behind me, and he said, I had an original thought the other day. I had to turn around and look at it. I've never heard an original thought, (laughs) except in the Word of God. And so we're not looking for something that has no founding, but solid. These are things that have been given us from the past. So Peter says, I want to remind you of the things you already know. Verse 13 present tense perspective. Yes, I think it is right as long as I am in this tent. Now, of course, he wasn't talking about camping out or an RV like we have, but rather in this body, as long as I'm breathing and living in this body to stir you up by reminding you present tense. But how about the future? From his apostolic perspective, he's looking ahead in verse 15 Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. How's he going to do that? He's going to write it down. And it was written, and you and I are reading it today, approximately 2,000 years after the apostle Simon Peter wrote this down, looking into the future till the Lord would come again. And so you and I, we have this personal reminder from the writer of this epistle. Take it personally. We need this reminder. Secondly, there is, as you look back in Second Peter chapter 3, you'll notice in verse 2 that you may be mindful. I like these plays on words, don't you? A reminder to make us mindful, if you don't mind. It's all around that root word, huh? We want to have our mind full of this reminder of the words which were spoken before. And look here, by the holy prophets. So this reminder comes not only personally from the apostle Simon Peter, it comes prophetically from our Bible, looking all the way back to the past prophets, the holy prophets of old. What were some of these prophets? Who were they? Well, the very first one called a prophet was the seventh generation from Adam. His name was Enoch. Now, we can read about Enoch in Genesis, but we don't have his prophecy until we get to the book of Jude. Jude tells us what his prophecy was. He says, Behold, Enoch, seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, The Lord is coming with ten thousands of his saints to execute fiery judgment on all this ungodly world for all their ungodly ways. That's a pretty fiery prophet, wouldn't you say? And that prophecy came from all the way back in the early pages of the book of Genesis. But not only Enoch, the major prophets, they all looked ahead to the coming of the Lord. Isaiah, he spoke of Messiah coming for his life here, but also for his coming kingdom when he sets up his kingdom and restores this world to the millennial blessing that God has in store for it. Ezekiel tells us about the worship in the kingdom by giving us, I mean, it's such a detailed description, you'd think he's reading the blueprints for the millennial temple. 
that will stand in Jerusalem on this earth when Jerusalem goes up like a high mountain and all the rest of the world is debased. But his kingdom will be exalted. And then Daniel. I mean, we've got everything we need here, really, don't we? Daniel tells us, really, with split-second timing, when is going to happen when the Messiah comes into the world, when he's cut off, and then we're waiting to see the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy of the Lord, that stone cut without hands, bringing, crashing down the kingdoms of this world and exalting his eternal kingdom, starting with the millennial. Well, no wonder they call them the major prophets. <laughs> the minor prophets, well, they give us a lot of detail too, like Joel, when the moon turns to blood. Uh, Simon Peter thought that was happening on Pentecost, but there was more to be told about that. And then the other prophets, like Hosea, speaking of the restoration of Israel as the people of God. And then Zechariah. Zechariah has more prophecies about his coming than any of the other minor prophets. And he says, then they're going to look on him whom they've pierced, and they're going to mourn for him. And as we mentioned yesterday, his feet are going to stand there on the Mount of Olives. And the mount, well, it will split North to south and a split from east to west is going to run right through the Mount of Olives. We were standing on the Mount of Olives a number of years ago with our Israeli guide. And as we were standing on the Mount of Olives looking over to the Temple Mount, Jerusalem, he said, you know, there's a geological fault line runs right through this mountain. He's, I mean, we know that geological fault lines are under every major city of the world. You know that, don't you? I, I traveled out a little while back to California and went across the St. Andreas Fault. When I uh, was told by Dave Dixon, he said, now we're going to go across an interesting area. And he said, it's the St. Andreas Fault. And I I thought, well, it would probably be a little marker and a little line or something like that. It's an area about maybe a half mile long. And the the road is all bent up and and broken up and winding around. And you see rocks jutting up from the tectonic plates coming together. I mean, this is serious stuff. One day in one hour, all the kingdoms of this world are going to come crashing down. And right there on the Mount of Olives, he said, a geological fault line runs right through the mountain. I said, oh, that's what Zachariah said was going to happen. I said, where does it go from here? He said, it goes right from the Mount of Olives across the Kidron Valley, right up, a, up onto the Temple Mount, right through the Golden Gate. You know, that Golden Gate or Eastern Gate, one of the 12 gates around Jerusalem. That gate is the gate that was sealed up by Suleiman, the Ottoman emperor, who said when he heard that Messiah would come again through the Eastern Gate, he said, he's not coming in through here, and he blocked it up. You think a few blocks are going to keep the Messiah out? <laughs> he's going to open that gate right up. I want you to think about this every time you pass a McDonald's and see the golden arches. Because <laughs> it's a double gate called the golden gate. It's the eastern gate, and it's going to open up, and Messiah is going to take his place up on the throne of David, and he's going to reign. Uh, I tell you, these minor prophets, they didn't have a minor message, did they? They knew exactly what they were talking about. And I love Malachi. Someone said he was the Italian prophet, Malachi. Malachi. Do you know what he said in the very last chapter of the Old Testament? He said, the son of righteousness is going to rise with healing in his wings. And he's going to bring peace and order in this world that is so sick with sin. 
and he's going to show what it should have been and what it could have been, but what it will be from for all eternity. I tell you, we have a wonderful Savior, and he's coming back again. Beloved, be reminded personally, prophetically. But look again in Second Peter chapter 3, and you'll notice in verse 2, he adds to this list and of the commandment of us, the apostles of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The apostles giving this reminder? Oh, yes. If you, if you even count John the Baptist in the prophetical section, they were all part, weren't they? As John the Baptist said, <laughs> you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? And the Lord Jesus leading these disciples who became the apostles, speaking about the end times, sitting on the Mount of Olives, saying that tribulation, the great one, is going to come such as has not been since the beginning of the world, no, nor shall ever be. And these apostles, they took that message and they went forth of his death, burial, resurrection, and coming again. And they were willing to lay down their lives for what they knew to be true. And so from the apostles, as he mentions here, the commandment of us, the apostles of our Lord and Savior, we see that that reminder came from his day presently. And we need that present reminder too. I guess the most instructive part of this portion, verses 1 through 8, is the reminder that comes practically very helpful for us in the day in which we live. Because we live in a time when people are trying to cover up and dismiss what we know are God's plans for the future. Of course, they try to get rid of our creator by denying creation. If the foundations are destroyed, what will the righteous do, Psalm 11 asks. And so hitting the foundations of the creator, who became our savior, they think that they can get out of the judgment yet to come. But you and I know that God is going to judge this world in righteousness by this one, the Lord Jesus Christ. So while we live in a day that casts doubt on his word, Peter gives us a warning very practically. And this reminder comes practically in verse 3 through 7. Notice the details he gives us. It's very instructive. First of all, against the scoffers who are coming. Verse 3, knowing this, that scoffers will come in the last days. And whenever I meet a scoffer, <laughs> I take heart. How about you? Because it just reminds me the Lord is coming again. There was a Bible school student that was writing some notes about the rapture, about the Lord's coming, and his unbelieving professor walked by and said, you mark that out. You can't prove that. I said, so what'd you do? He said, I looked up at him and I said, I've read about you before. <laughs> he said, where have you read about me? He said, scoffers will come in the last days saying, where is the promise of his coming? <laughs> you got to watch out for these unbelieving professors, huh? How do you know if it's a scoffer or not? Peter tells us how. In verse 3 again, here's the way you know a scoffer, by their walk. Walking according to their own lust. Look at their life. That's what it means. Not the way they walk left, right, left, right, left, right. But the way they walk, the way they live. And you'll see every form of debauchery and depravity demonstrated in their lives. 
because of their unbelief. Not only according to their walk and lifestyle, but according to their words in verse 4, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? It's a question, isn't it? First question ever asked in the Bible. It was asked by the devil himself. Indeed, hath God said, casting doubt on the word of God, twisting the scriptures and the words that God had given. And that's what scoffers do. They cast doubt. They're not asking a question for information. They're not saying, uh, where was that verse again? They're saying, where's the promise of his coming? As if to say, there's no such thing as a promise. Let me ask you, if you met a scoffer today after lunch, and he said, where's the promise of the Lord's coming? Would you have an answer for him? Let me help you out. It helps me out just to recall to mind that the Lord himself has said, I will come again. John chapter 14, verse 3. Two and three, really. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, you know what he says, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am there you may be also. So he's there now. A place is prepared for a people that have been prepared through his work at Calvary. He was going to the cross and then he went to the father's house and he has a place all ready for us. It's a place that extends far exceeds our, our wildest imagination, the things that God has prepared. It has not been seen nor heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for them that love him. But the little bit that has been revealed to us by the Spirit is wonderful. The little we know about the place prepared for us. I'm so glad we have a promise when a scoffer by his word says, says, Where's the promise of his coming? We say John 14, 2 and 3. Well, that's just one verse. He says, no, in the last chapter of our Bible, how, what better place could you have it? Three times he says, I am coming quickly. <laughs> Revelation 22, verse 7, verse 12, and verse 20. In fact, the time he says it in verse 20, as John writes it down, behold, I come quickly. John just can't stand it anymore. He puts down his pen as if to say, Amen, even so. Come, Lord Jesus. Is that your response when you hear his promise? He's coming again? Try that one one more time. Is that your response when you hear that he's coming again? Amen. He is coming again. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. It's all right to be a little bit interactive here, isn't it? When we're talking about something so important as this. I mean, if he says he's coming again, he's coming again. And even if the scoffer says, oh, you can't believe that. Where's the promise like that? We've got it right here in the book <laughs> written. I started to say black and white, but written in red in my Bible. <laughs> the words of the Lord Jesus himself. He said, I am coming again. You know, you can know a scoffer not only by his walk in verse three and by his words in verse four. I will mention also in verse four. The reasoning of the scoffer says, for since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. I, I met a man, a believer. He said, you know, I grew up, my grandfather said it, my father said he's coming again. He hadn't come yet. I said, it's all the more reason to believe he may be coming in our lifetime. The apostle Paul, he lived and believed the Lord was coming in his lifetime. 
Then we, speaking of himself and those of his contemporary day, who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord. He believed it. He lived it. That's the way we want to live, isn't it? And so you see a scoffer and you recognize him according to his walk, according to his words, and in verse 5, according to his will. Because that's really the heart of the matter, isn't it? For this they willfully forget. Don't confuse me with the facts. (laughs) This is what I believe. This is what I will. And it's the will of man, isn't it, that has to be affected. We submit our wills to him, unto salvation, (laughs) unto service, unto every area of life. His will has to become our will. The Lord Jesus is the perfect example. Not my will, but thy will be done. His will was always exactly the same as the Father's will. Our will is bent toward our own, but we submit our will to him. But the scoffer, you recognize him by his will. They won't even consider the true option that cannot be on the table. They want it eliminated completely. Do you know, I got to tell you a little story on Nance. (laughs) Bumper stickers. We love to read license plates and bumper stickers, try to figure out their message. Do you do that? We are on the road too much then. But one of our favorite bumper stickers was, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. You've seen that one before, haven't you? That's an oldie goldie, huh? Nancy told me, she said, they're wasting a lot of words there. You don't need that second line at all. God said it, and that settles it, period, exclamation point. We, whether you believe it or not, it's still true. No matter how much you will it, his will wins ultimately. That's against the scoffers. What do we really have when it comes to a scoffer? Well, we have the scriptures. And so you'll notice in verse 5, after we read about the scoffer who willfully forget, and by the way, they're willingly ignorant is what the authorized version says. You know, I used to be an ignoramus too. I was ignorant of God's truth. But he changed my will and changed my knowledge of what he says. And so here's what we have to answer. We have the scriptures. Verse 5, that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water. What's that speaking of? Creation. God spoke it into being. And his words, if you go through Genesis 1, you'll read 10 times. And God said, and God said, it's the 10 commandments of creation. And all the creation obeyed him until we get to man. But God spoke this world into being by creation. In verse 6, we have the scriptures mentioned again. By which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. What's he speaking of here? He's speaking of the flood of Noah's day. You know, that was a global flood. Completely covered the earth. We know it because of the evidences of the flood. How did it happen? By the word of God, by which the world that then existed. So we have the scriptures even speaking of the flood. <clears throat> Nancy and I were down in the, the Bahamas at Manowar Key a number of years ago. We met a Jewish couple, uh, Lou and Ronnie Levy. And they were a delightful couple, traveled around in their lot, yacht, and they parked their yacht or uh, they, <clears throat> what do you do when you park a boat? <clears throat> they anchored their yacht <clears throat> in the natural harbor of Manowar Key. And so we met them. 
And they, <clears throat> when we were introduced to them, they said, oh, uh, you're Christians and, uh, <clears throat> and in ministry. And she said, you know, I never hear you Christians speak from the Old Testament or from our Bible. She didn't say the Old Testament. They would be offended if I just said the Old Testament. But you never speak from our Bible. And I said, I'm speaking from Genesis tonight. And she came. And so we got to know them pretty well. She was reading through the Bible. And uh, Nancy encouraged her. She said, well, when you get <clears throat> all the way through your Bible, read the New Testament or the, the Christian scriptures. And uh, she said, why would I read, read <clears throat> the New Testament? She said, well, it was written by Jews, you know. <clears throat> so it really stirred her heart. So we had a little ice cream sundae with Lou and Ronnie at an outdoor kind of restaurant out on the veranda with other customers there as well. <clears throat> and they were talking to me, and she was going through Genesis, and she was on Noah's flood. And she said, do you really think the flood was worldwide, a global flood? I said, I absolutely do. And a voice from the back said, You'd have to be a fool to believe something like that. <clears throat> yeah, a couple sitting back behind me. They had just sailed, sailed around the world. And uh, <clears throat> they said, there's no way 40 days and 40 nights of rain would, would cover the whole earth. I immediately, I'm not a confrontatious person. I, I might seem that way when I'm preaching. But I'm pretty safe up here, you know. <clears throat> but I'm not confrontatious. I like to take the easy way out. But here we were with these two people, Jewish people, that we wanted to be winsome. <clears throat> and so I thought of the proverb that says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him. But you know what the next verse says, Proverbs 26, verse, is it 25 or 26, verse 5 says, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. And so when he said, You'd have to be a fool to believe something like that, I turned around and I said, have you ever read the account in the Bible of what happened in Noah's flood? Of course not. Everybody in the whole place laughed. <laughs> well, I said, well, it'd be hard to discuss it intelligently if you haven't read it. And that was the end of the conversation. <laughs> and I turned back around to Ronnie and Lou. And, and Ronnie, the lady, she said, what does it say in the Bible about it? I said, you know, it says that the floodgates of heaven were open and the fountains of the deep were broken up and the floods came from up above and down below and it took care of the whole world covered. And those <clears throat> those sea creature fossils we find up on top of the mountains, they think it was those born again believers that stuck them up there, right? No, it was from the flood. The evidence is all around us that God said it and that settles it. Well, look what he adds to this in verse 7. He said, but the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire and judge the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. It's by the same word that spoke creation into being, that brought about the flood of Noah's day, and that is preserving the world that now exists for fire and judgment of that day. I would say these are some practical reminders, wouldn't you? Beloved, be reminded. We come to verses 8 and 9, <clears throat> and it's beloved, be informed. We want to know what God is doing, what he has planned. Oh, thank you so much. 
the big bottle today. You know, at the conference, they give you the little bottle. And this is cold at the conference. It was warm, but it was also satisfying. Thank you very much, brother. You know, there's a reward whoever gives a cup of cold in his name. So verses 8 and 9 says, But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord a day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. We want to be informed about God's clock. You see, his clock doesn't work according to our timing, because a day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. I'm glad that God's clock doesn't work like our clock. A day is a thousand years, a thousand years is a day. If we've been here approximately 6,000 years, that's just not even a week yet. God has a plan for the seventh day. We don't know the day nor the hour, but we do know the truth that he's coming again. And so we don't try to set dates or try to figure out what day or what time. We just know it may be at morning, it may be at noon. We're praying that it's soon. I remember reading in... Reader's Digest, one of these little cartoons, all about the greatness of God. And a young man in the cartoon frame number one was contemplating, he was contemplating the vastness and the treasures of all creation. He said, Lord, what's a million dollars to you? And the Lord said, it's just a penny. And then frame number three, he was thinking about time. He said, Lord, what's a million dollars, a million years to you? And the Lord said, it's just a minute. And then he put two and two together. And frame number five, he said, Lord, would you give me a penny? You know, frame number six, in a minute. (laughs) We can't conceive of an eternal God, can we? I mean, mean, we're counting down. We're ten till right now. And this is when the preacher's clock moves very slowly, those last ten minutes. And yet God looks at this as just a, a drop of a bucket. I have a friend whose father went to be with the Lord. His mother went to be with the Lord about 20 years before. And he was meeting with his family and trying to comfort them. And he said, you know, mom or grandma to them, in the scale of a day is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day, he said, mom went to be with the Lord about five minutes ago. He said, dad just went just now. He said, we're sad and they're glad. Because they know the Lord will be back and we'll all be together within the hour. Our time. It doesn't mean a thing to the Lord, does it? Our lives just pass like a breath. But God is the eternal God. And we know that his timing is always best. He's never in a hurry. He's never late. A day is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. Verse 9 tells us not about his clock, but about His compassion, and we need to be informed about this. Not only his timing, but his reason. Verse 9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, that's the best form of information. We want to see our family saved, our friends saved. As much as we want it, God wants it even more. When we pray for someone's salvation, we're not twisting God's arm. He's not willing that any perish. He's done everything necessary to save us and whosoever will put their trust in him. That's God's compassion. It far exceeds our desire. And I'm so glad we can be informed and know that based on his wonderful word. So, beloved, be reminded. Beloved, 
be informed. Verses 10 through 16, I've subtitled it, Beloved, Be Holy. Look at the things he tells us. He first of all talks about the passing away of heaven and earth, or the heavens and the earth. In verse 10, he tells us, The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. Now, that's the heavens, the uh, terrestrial heavens, I guess, or the, the atmospheric heavens is all going to pass away. And the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. So everything we can see with our eyes, touch with our hands, it's all going to perish. Not only are these things passing away, but I looked in the mirror this morning and saw that I was passing away. These bodies, these physical bodies, this is not the way we're going to be forever. C.S. Lewis said, if you could see me two seconds after I die, you'd be tempted to fall down and worship me now. We're going to get a brand new glorified body. This old body is going to pass away. Verse 12, I'll just skip through verse past verse 11 for a moment. But verse 12 says, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire. And the elements will melt with fervent heat. Talk about global warming. We haven't seen anything yet, have we? <clears throat> the whole world's going to go. Nothing is going to be left as we see it today. Isn't it amazing that we put down our roots here? <laughs> We're just going to pluck them up. This is just temporary. A man moved to Charlotte and he wanted to find a house. So I put him in the car and from the chapel we drove around the area. The houses were big right around that area. He said, Brother Rex, these are some big houses. <clears throat> and I said, yes, but one day they're all going to burn. Past the next intersection, and the houses doubled in size. I could tell he was being reflective. <laughs> and he says, Brother Rex, these houses are going to burn a lot longer than what I can afford. <laughs> so we had to go to a different place. It doesn't matter how big, how little it is. Just remember, don't put our affections on the things on this world. We call them possessions, but sometimes they possess us. You possess them. Love people, use things. The world has it backwards. <laughs> they love things and they use people. But God says, don't let it be that way. Be different from the rest of the world. That's what be holy really means. Not only <clears throat> the passing away, but let's replace that passing away with the promise of things to come. Verse 11, tell, I'm sorry, verse 13 tells us, what we have is a promise. Nevertheless, we, that word nevertheless, think of it as all the more, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We're going to a place that is righteous. To be prepared, we want to live righteous lives. Beloved, be holy. And then here is the application verse, verse 11. Therefore, when you see the word therefore, it is there for application. Since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Beloved, be holy, be different. God has marked us out. Let the world see the difference in us. We're not living for this world. We're living for that world, the one which is to come. Lastly, in verses 17 and 18, I'll just skip over. Uh, I should read verse 14, I'm sorry. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace. He majored on this morning. 
without spot and blameless. We, we want to be separated people, separated unto him, and set apart from this world. Beloved, be holy. Now, verses 17 and 18. Beloved, be warned. In verse 17, he speaks about being on our guard. And so he says, you therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware. That's the warning we have. Be warned, beware. We know it before. Lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. What a warning. Lest you fall. Now, remember who wrote this. It's his last chapter ever that he ever writes. Simon Peter, he fell. And he fell in a big way, didn't he? I want to take this warning more from Simon Peter than from anyone else. Because he knows the bitterness of defeat and failure and falling. And so he says, you be warned. Beware lest you fall. There is no one who cannot fall. And whenever we think we wouldn't fall, really, that's the time to watch out. Let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. A haughty spirit goes before a fall, and pride before destruction. And so he gives us this warning. He knows what falling is about. What's the best way to keep from falling? To major on your standing. And so he says, beloved, be on your guard in verse 17 and verse 18. Beloved, be growing. He speaks about our spiritual growth. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I like that balance, don't you? Grow in the grace and knowledge. We need both. I like the order of it, too. Grow in grace and then knowledge. You grow in knowledge, you become high-minded. You grow in grace, you become big-hearted. He wants us to have a big heart as well as a clear mind. But we need that grace in order to handle the knowledge that he's given to us. That verse, by the way, and that phrase in verse 18, it's like an outline of both of these epistles. Growing in grace and knowledge, we need both. First Peter is all about growing in grace. Second Peter, all about growing in knowledge. And that balance has given to us what gives us a clear walk. Truth always walks on two legs. And as we stand in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus, we want to be growing in him. Our ultimate goal, the last sentence, our last two sentences of this epistle. To him be the glory. That's our goal, isn't it? Both now and forever. And if you'll finish that with me, we're almost done. Amen. Now, I caught you there. When I got home from Africa, I turned on the Sunday morning preachers getting ready for the meeting myself, and I heard some of the good preachers we love. And they said some good things. And when they did, I noticed there was a round of applause. I said, boy, that's different. It wasn't amens like I used to hear. And I got to analyzing it on the way to the meeting. You know, an applause says, I like what he said. I like how she sang. And it has its place. But when you say amen, that's a word of conviction, isn't it? Literally, it means, Lord, let it be so in my life. And so we want him to get the glory both now and forever. Amen. amen. Shall we close with a word of prayer? Our Father, we thank you for this reminder as your beloved children. We thank you, Father, for showing us what you're like and how you're working in your timetable. We thank you, Father, for 
the way that you are preparing us for a place that's been prepared for us in which righteousness dwells. Help us to live holy lives in matters of conduct as becomes believers. And Father, we thank you for giving us this last warning to be on our guard and to be growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. We pray that you would receive the glory in every way in this local assembly and in the ministry of your word and in our personal lives as we live in light of your Son, our Savior, the Lord's coming, we pray in his name. Amen. Thank you so much for the privilege of being here with you. We look forward to our next time.